Our next speaker uh, is someone who I've known as a colleague and kind of a frenemy, and then, then as a friend. You know, the relationship evolved over a period of years. But I think it would be fair to say that we maybe have more mutual respect for each other now because we went through that process than if we'd just been, you know, totally chummy from the beginning. Um, Jen Graves started at The Stranger around 2006. We can't exactly remember, uh, but she and I started around the same time. We disagreed about a lot of stuff. We were both art critics. I mean, I was a theater critic. She was an art critic, but critics in the arts world. Um, and you're in for a ride. <laughs> um, she was a Pulitzer Prize finalist for art criticism. Um, she was the author of a work called This Land is False Land, in which she wrote, Seattle's topography is one of the most outrageous land sculptures in American history. Um, and uh, she started working in newspapers when she was in college and never stopped and just said that maybe 60% of the interior of her body has been tattooed with newspaper stories, because I was jokingly asking near her how many she thought she'd written. Um, she's worked at Texas, Tacoma News Tribune, Stranger, um, and uh, she swims a lot. She says she tries to swim as much as possible, and she swims from Ballard to Magnolia with her dog, which sounds really impressive, but the dog keeps the seals away, apparently. Um, and I'm not going to tell you much more. I'm going to let her do it. So, Jen Graves, Scale and Volume. Hmm. I didn't know Brennan was going to tell you about my swimming. We were frenemies. We always said we were like a, a couple in another life, but divorced. <laughs> but we really did, it, things did change. I almost forgot about that time. Brendan is, uh, I could share something really embarrassing with Bre about Brendan now that was also, is also kind of embarrassing about me, um, which is we have this like really nostalgic college style hankering for the music of Ani DeFranco. <laughs> super embarrassing, sorry. But whenever it comes on, I'm like, I'm gonna text Brendan, <laughs> not anybody else, or tell anyone, so don't please tell anyone. Um, so I, I guess the first thing I wanna do is thank Brendan for inviting me, thank you for being here, um, and just thank you to Smoke Farm for, for existing. Um, I've been, listening intently to all the talks and really excited about the ideas and the questions and the commitments. Um, and um, like Jolly Mansoor who talked this morning, I am also nervous to give this talk and it is also, she said she is an art historian who was constantly lecturing about art history and she finds it unusual to be nervous. I have a similar situation where I, you know, was a very public-facing art critic for many years, and um, this is my first event um, after, uh, well, after, and uh, so I'll just begin. That's my son. For the first half of 2017, I stayed away from all art. No art. Art not allowed. I worried there was no way to see it on my own and on its own. I feared that the magic of my long relationship with it had ended with my career. My byline, Jen Graves, had become my identity, and I was afraid that in all kinds of ways, if I attempted to see art again, that Jen Graves would intervene. But because there were works of art visiting the city that I couldn't miss, in those long months I did sneak into Seattle Art Museum twice. You might have seen me with a bag. I didn't wear a bag. Uh, I found myself undone 
the first time by a small painting in the corner of the corner of a wood cabin. And you see that painting on the upper left here. The painting is unusual. It is number 25 out of 60 in Jacob Lawrence's series of paintings, Migration. Uh, his epic portrayal of the mass departure of African Americans from the South to the North in the 20th century. Um, most of the paintings, and especially the ones that are well known, have figures in them. It's interesting, I counted how many there were without figures, and it's actually like eight or nine out of 60. But when Lawrence was interviewed about this painting, he said it's one of only two or three without figures. So I think he also saw non-figuration as really rare. So the picture, as you can see, is just a corner of a room with a window in it and a shade pulled down over the window. But what a forlorn place this is. And he achieved it with only a few simple lines, very limited palette, just that small amount of green and blue, the brown and the black. What textbooks describe in the Great Migration in public school is a story of progress. Basically, they report the North was better, the North was the future, and the future was better. But those textbooks do not deal with most things, of course, and they do not deal with this empty room. Um, when Lawrence was interviewed about this painting, he said, quote, in the South, the races were very close, despite all the friction and problems. There was a closeness there that did not exist in many areas in other parts of the country, and I can understand that. This is one of the problems that became so deep psychologically. This room, this place was, quote, a void that has occurred or is about to occur, he said. There were many losses in many, 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 many directions um, in the migration. But the unexpected loss he's referring to is this void that was opening up. It came with the separation and a loss characterized by the fact that what replaced the private, intimate abuse of the South was the public, impersonal dehumanization of the North. This was a new sort of silence, and we still live in it, I would argue. All my life, I've been trying to shout truths from mountaintops, or just shout things from mountaintops. I've not been quiet, uh, ever, but now, the loudest voices in public life are shrieking lies all day long. So I find myself drawn to codes and underground speech sort of for the first time. I was in college the first time I discovered people make things and then leave them in rooms for other people to come upon. That's art. It is a completely peculiar kind of exchange. It's offering a secret on a platter but not telling what the secret is. And I realize more clearly now than, than ever that what I've always wanted more than anything for art is for it to offer more than flirtation or distraction. I think the potential for frivolousness is high in the things, some of the things that I care very much about. And I think the um, potential for um, actualness <laughs> is low. Which doesn't mean it doesn't happen, but it's something I'm always really looking for, and it's a little embarrassing to admit that that's the case, um, given all the arguments about Art shouldn't be political, art should be... I'm not terribly interested in that argument. This is my conviction. What I have wanted from art, I guess I'm now realizing, is I've wanted cracking its codes to give us practice for how to see anything new or unknown and not resort to abuse 
or dehumanization. Recently, I got a phone call from a person who said they were suicidal. I asked whether they were considering killing themselves that night, and they said they had already tried. The noose had hurt too much, so they took it off. It was still sitting there beside them. Not knowing what else to do, they had dialed the crisis line, and I happened to be the volunteer who answered that call that night. A brief aside about that story. In sharing any story from the crisis line, I remove any identifying details and I am worried that it feels like dining out on someone's pain. Um, I did it because I think it's important for you to know exactly what goes on. And I also did it because the crisis line is actually a need of volunteers. So um, if, if it sounds adventurous to listen to other people's pain, and I think that's a difficult thing to admit, um, that shouldn't be the reason that you stay away. A few months ago, I began going weekly to answer the phone at the crisis clinic. Um, this is after following a training, don't worry. People call this line when they're con considering killing themselves. They call it to ask for an ear on everyday struggles, too. They call it because they have run out of other people, it seems like a good idea to call. The people who answer the phones at the crisis line, there are six phones supervised by four or five professional clinicians who only guide, never get on the phone themselves. These phone workers are volunteers. The line takes calls 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That is a lot of volunteers, and they take tens of thousands of calls per year. The day I decided, the day I, decided I could no longer do the work I cared about in the newspaper business as it exists now, I applied to graduate school to become a psychotherapist. I start school in the fall. My former publisher is here. <laughs> as unrelated as it seems, my work on the crisis line and my future work as a psychotherapist is related to the entire project of what I was trying to do during my 20 years as a critic. I used to help people and their objects tell their stories in public. People would ask me, why don't you go to New York and do that? Why don't you go to Los Angeles and do that? Why don't you write for Art in America? Why don't you go write for Art Forum on the side? Why don't you? Um, there were many, many reasons for that. Um, but the, the most important one for me was I saw my job as civic, like the job of the mail carrier. What this meant to me was I wanted to show up every day in an ongoing relationship with the people of a particular place carrying messages. Being public was a responsibility I took seriously. It kept me honest and hardworking, precisely because it was a privilege and a duty, and because people were counting on me to notice things that nobody else would because I was looking all the time. Not some of the time. That was an enormous honor, and um, I was very, very lucky for a long time, and it's one that I miss, and it's one that I feel remiss for no longer performing every day. There's that slogan emblazoned in the architecture atop the entrance to the New York Post Office on 8th Avenue, the one across from Penn Station. It says, neither snow, nor rain, nor heat, nor gloom of night stays these couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds. And it sounds like I'm taking myself way too seriously when I compare writing about culture to anything that involves the gloom of night. But in that pact lies something of the difference between aspiring to be an academic intellectual driven to explore and expand a field itself and aspiring to be a public intellectual driven to make the observations and connections that bring those fields closer to everyday people 
that is not a veiled insult to the people who do direct research on the things that interest me the most, which is academic intellectuals. But it is an explanation of where I come from. I'm a workhorse. And now, what does it mean that I'm switching into private life? Becoming a civilian, as someone called me the day after I left the newspaper, and a quiet one. Art hasn't been the only thing I've avoided in 2017. It's been a year without social media, and I think I have like 5,000, I hit the limit, Facebook friends who are probably wondering why we are Facebook friends, because I haven't posted anything. This wasn't a transition I necessarily saw coming. The truth is that I have distrusted private things for good reasons, as my rants to my kids will prove. <laughs> private businesses, private beaches, private entire buildings with blocks long of lobbies that are empty at night, leather couches staring out at the people sleeping on the sidewalks. We have honored privacy cheaply as the province of property not as a category of experience. If it is supposed to buy protection for those who need it, I don't buy that it's working. Yet at this moment, there is of course a very big factor. And it is that the public domain, led by the government and its supporters, has become nakedly terrifying. If I find myself moving toward a certain type of privacy, it cannot be unrelated. The conundrum, and maybe I am not alone in this, is that I do not want to drop out of civic engagement, even while I have to question the efficacy of everything I did up to the point that got us here. Yes, I did make a difference by speaking in public. How much of one? And how much of a difference could I make in private? After all, relying on the free press is a tough sell in a moment when there are five PR people for every news reporter, which in 2015 was up from two to one in the year 2000. As David Simon, writer of the TV show The Wire and a former Baltimore Sun reporter tweeted at this news when it came out, this is how a republic dies, not with a bang, but a reprinted press release. So where do I go next? Underground, into both privacy and secrecy, as from above ground into an ant colony. Secrecy is what is known, but not to everyone, wrote Jill Lepore. Privacy is what allows us to keep what we know to ourselves. For now, in the privacy of a therapist's office, I may become able to help people tell their stories still. Only this time, I will be helping them tell their stories to themselves. The whole point is that they are protected from public view, shielded with very few exceptions entirely by confidentiality laws, and contained in a single room they can enter and then leave behind, like a drawer where they can put all of the things they'd prefer not to look at during other times or in other company. There is a field called the psychology of aesthetics. It traces its roots back to Kant, that early critic of who should like what and why in art. The psychology of aesthetics looks at why human beings have a hedonic response to art. A hedonic response being one in which you feel anything at all, pleasant or unpleasant. Why do our senses respond when we experience an object left behind by somebody else? How do the indirect languages of art become connecting? And do we experience other people aesthetically, too, or through using aesthetic means. There are some basic leading theories on these questions and plenty of ongoing research. Um, I found a quarterly journal that called Psychology of Aesthetics, Creativity, and the Arts. And a couple titles of papers from the current issue are, quote, Black Holes and Vacuum Cleaners, using metaphor, relevance, and inquiry in labels for space images, connected to create a social network analysis of friendship ties and creativity, and 
Engineering Student Creativity in a Probability and Statistics Course, Investigating Perceived versus Actual Creativity. That last one especially gets me, because I have spent the better part of my adult life investigating the difference between perceived and actual creativity. <laughs> uh, I came to the field of psychology, of the psychology of aesthetics, through an artist, of course, Annie Albers. Annie Albers was a weaver, who got her start in the Bauhaus before it was dismantled by the Nazis. She was influenced by an essay that hit the art world of the early 20th century as though it were written by an established master. Though in truth, it was just the doctoral thesis of a young German fellow named Wilhelm Voringer. In 1908, Voringer wrote Abstraktion und Einfühlung, or Abstraction and Empathy a contribution to the psychology of style. Now, I am taken by the entire title of this thesis as an as a amateur linguist. Abstraction and empathy, a contribution to the psychology of style. Is, it is almost entirely comprised of words whose meanings are unfixed. What a floating event is that title. Just take the German word for empathy that Warnger used, Einfühlung. It translates literally into feeling into feeling into. Another German grad student invented that in the 19th century, also describing how human beings relate to works of art, although it became a term about the way human beings relate to human beings. All art is a source of indirect language. What speaks also refuses to speak. And therefore, in order to love a work of art, do you need to feel that it is speaking your language, as we sometimes Say, or do you prefer to feel that it is different from you? If it, quote, speaks to you, does that also mean you know what it says? Varinger was inspired to write Abstraction and Empathy, which, by the way, is an argument in favor of abstract works of art because we cannot empathize or identify with them, not because we can, as he saw it. After visiting the Musée d'Ethnographie du Trocadéro, the first anthropological museum in Paris, founded in 1878 and cited by Picasso as containing the primitive art that helped him to finish his large and quickly famous La Demoiselle d'Avignon. Voringer's mind was set afire by, as he described it, quote, that vast complex of works of art that pass beyond the narrow framework of Greco-Roman and modern Occidental art. Unrecognizable stuff, strange stuff, foreign stuff alien stuff. You see the problem in this immediately, of course. It is classically colonial, classical act of othering, falling squarely in the tradition of writers and thinkers who come upon a culture they know nothing about and set to using it for their own ends. But I'd like to look at it in the hopes that there's something more than fetishization there. What I find interesting about Voringer's notion is that he felt less alone when he faced something he found alien. Until then, the mainstream theory that went, the mainstream theory went that there were two kinds of experiences that were possible to have with a work of art. Given that every work of art was an abstraction of the actual world, landscape paintings, historical statue, portrait, etc. Those two experiences were negative empathy or positive empathy. Basically, you either found yourself in the art or you didn't. And if you didn't, it was negative empathy. It was unpleasant to you. If you did find yourself identifying, then it was positive empathy. This was pleasant. This explained why you loved or hated an artwork, whether you saw it as the self or the not self. These are very old ideas, and I would argue that we are not necessarily much far past that. But Voringer refused the basic terms of the, this theory. He argued that the fact that people have made scenes that look, like, that look nothing like the actual world forever, a pyramid, a Byzantine mosaic, means that recognizability is not a prerequisite for aesthetic pleasure. In fact, he argued the opposite, and he used the moderns to do it. When he wrote the essay, it was 1908. Modern painters and sculptors were making their turns toward abstraction already, and if you just take the marvelous exhibition, Inventing Abstraction, organized by Leah Dickerman in uh, 2012 at the Museum of Modern Art, as your timeline of abstraction, abstraction was above ground in earnest by 1910. 
In that show, some of the earliest works were photographs, and of course, that medium sniffed furiously around the question of what other kinds of art could do if recognizability were to be co-opted by the photograph. And again, I'm talking about recognizability both as a psychological experience and an aesthetic property, and looking at those connections. Warringer believed that people responded to art because it was separate. It was outer space in the literal sense, a space, a place, a quote, refuge from appearances that was driven not by the search for pleasure or happiness, but by spiritual anxiety and dread about the actual visible material world as it was. I like this as an alternative to Marcel Duchamp's anti-retinal stance, which is an entirely intellectual stance and it's a very um, 20th century stance. This is a very 19th century affective, sensual stance, which also has its problems, but I'm interested in just revisiting it here for the moment. In part because I feel pretty full of anxiety and dread about the material world at the moment. I also feel like I need a refuge from appearances, but in my case, right now, I think that just means that I find myself listening harder for the coded, the quiet, the confidential, the speaking that doesn't speak. One of the most counterintuitive parts of answering phones on the crisis line is that offering sympathy is not particularly helpful and can be downright harmful. And that they have to train that instinct out of you. The instinct to help by identifying, by seeing yourself in another. Here's an example. A caller's mother has just died. You miss your own mother so much since she died, and you share this as a point of connection. But your caller, it turns out, hated her mother and doesn't miss her at all. Now your caller feels guilty, in addition to all the other feelings, and you've lost her. The applications of this are endless. But the entire point of the crisis line is connection. It is vital never to behave like the other person is unfathomable, like the other person is weird. Your job is to be the one human being they can call right now. And wow, I am here to tell you that we are living in an epidemic of loneliness. Maybe this is why I'm drawn to art that feels honest about the delicacy and difficulty of connection. In recent months, I'm drawn to artists who seem to be referring to that problem, this problem of articulation and connection, that it is a problem. It was for unknown reasons when Brendan Kiley asked me to do this talk that I wanted to discuss Annie Albers, the Bauhaus weaver, and I wanted to talk about, quote, scale and volume. When Brendan asked me to add a subtitle that would at least hold the slight potential of interesting anyone, I issued a sudden and stubborn refusal that surprised me by scale and volume, which just appeared in my head one morning. I suppose that I meant in part that I'm trying to figure out the size and noise level, noise level of a life in the midst of all the big madness. But to know that a tweet might start a nuclear war puts me out of the mood to summarize. So I am writing into the title rather than out from it. I suppose if there were a subtitle, it ought to be whispered or told in a game of telephone between all of you. Just like the title, Annie Albers appeared to me one day, a big book on her filed on my bookshelf for future reading. There's nothing particularly timely or newsworthy here. Albers is not having an exhibition. She rarely does. Her work exists in the shadow of her also late husband, Joseph Albers, who painted overlapping colored squares. That is a simplification, but let's move to Annie. The Bauhaus is known for, <laughs> for its progressive principles, but its highest echelons were the exclusive province of certain men. Women were forbidden to study architecture altogether and were shunted instead into the old-fashioned crafts of weaving and bookmaking, while the men innovated industrialized modern art and design. Many years later, Annie would reflect that, quote, it is interesting to observe that in ancient myths from many parts of the world, it was a goddess, a female deity, who brought the invention of weaving to mankind. When we realize that weaving is primarily a process of structural organization, this thought is startling. For today, thinking in terms of structure seems closer to the inclination of men than women. Like many of the moderns, like Voringer, whose work she read, 
Albers couldn't find what she was looking for within the confines of European cultural patrimony. Escaping the Holocaust to emigrate to the United States, she had begun early her lifetime of dislocation and world travel, especially in Mexico and South America. Her most lasting influence, the closest thing she found to an aesthetic home, was ancient Andean textiles. And if you know anything about them at all, um, they're amazing. And if you don't, you can Google and be stunned. And then you'll see them in person and be even more stunned. In her early weavings, it looks like Annie is insisting that women can make modernist housing projects too. This changed after she went to what's now Peru. She decided to make what she called abstract pictorial weavings. They were not figurative, and they did not contain the illusion of copying the world. They were pictographic. By applying a technique from the ancients that uses a floating weft thread that materializes on the surface like a light pencil line or a heavy pencil line, you could see that there were rhythms and shapes and even the outlines of things like landscapes. But above all, looking at them produces the feeling that they are holding back as much as they are offering up. To let threads be articulate again, Annie Albers wrote, is the raison d'etre of my pictorial weavings. What she's referring to are full pictographic weavings in what she's referring to in the history are full pictographic weavings from what's now Peru, but also something called quipus, textiles made of ropes and knots that look like a flaring sun when they're spread out flat. Scholars say that in the history of the world, there is no civilization as great as the Incan Empire that it also has no record of any written language, only what is believed to be the thread language of quipus. Using the pattern of knots and lengths of threads, quipus are thought to transmit complex mathematical and geographical information. There's speculation that literary quipus also exist, quipus that need a traditional oral storyteller's assistance to be brought to fruition. The other name for quipus is talking knots, a great term since trying to talk and be heard or even just trying to listen is far naughtier than it seems to be. And then it seems like it ought to be. We find out constantly, or I find out constantly, how rare it is to speak across sameness. It's fleeting, incredibly fleeting, even among the people I find the closest to me. We need our faith in literalism to function, clearly. But direct word language fails and eludes us all the time in ways from the banal to the tragic. Psychotic patients can't or won't talk, writes Seattle fiction author and nonfiction author and psychotherapist Trisha Reddy. Her most recent book describes arranging sessions so that music chosen by the patient acts as a therapist, while she and the patient broker an abstracted connection through the songs. It's the songs that unlock the stories, not Trisha. The songs are the first clinician, and Reddy becomes like a critic wondering the stories aloud as they come out, asking about where they might go. We listen together, Reddy wrote. There is an us who listens. And us, I think, can make the unspeakable close to speakable. It's common to ask what a work of art means, and easy to forget that any meaning beyond its material facts is seen in the chains of signification it sets off. In other words, not what the art says, but what this us who listen and look say about it to each other and what we can't say and don't say. On my second anonymous trip to Seattle Art Museum in these months, another bag over my head, the place was jammed with visitors to the Yayoi Kusama exhibition upstairs, which is full of polka dots and bright colors and rooms you walk into and become dazzled. I wandered away again towards something quiet and small an exhibition whose scale and volume were tempered to my current state of public silence and private phone conversations with one person at a time. The show was a one-room series of sculptural paintings by the Seattle artist Denzel Hurley. His work usually looks overtly secretive. It actually resembles Morse code sometimes. This time, I was surprised. Hurley was stepping forward just about as far as an abstractionist can not only offering code, but pointing urgently at that code, at the fact of its codeness. What stuck were three solid black canvases, each one attached like a lollipop to a sturdy branch 
with the bark removed. So you take Malevich's black square painting, mounted on a stick, do that with three of them grouped in one row, and suddenly you have a protest march. I'm reminded of Toronto artist Kelly Mark's loud protest, shouting the words, what do we want? Nothing. When do we want it? Now. Which to me was both funny and distressing. Hurley is calling his Seattle Art Museum show Disclosures. And I take the word disclosures to be anything but a literal indication that he is making any disclosures at all. It's more like, hold up, wait a minute, is this thing on? I felt less lonely standing there, looking up at the art, and knowing that I want to speak too, but not knowing how. Thank you. Now you. So first, I want to thank you for that really extraordinary presentation. Um, I'd like to ask a question that attempts to draw on both your interest in civic life as a journalist and observer, but also as someone who, at a very uh, personal level, has dealt with people who are obviously in deep depression and despair. You talked about the ep epidemic of loneliness. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about your thoughts um, on modern American despair. Like what, you know, what is behind what seems to be, I mean, obviously these conditions have been part of the human weave for forever, but, but there does seem to be something in terms of what's happening with suicide rates, what's happening with problems of despair such as um, the opioid crisis. And I'm wondering if if you have thoughts about what's behind this and, and what's going on, but also thoughts from a sort of civic journalistic perspective on how we can make our way through this as a culture and enable more people to lead more joyful and connected lives. Thank you. Well, if I had the answers to that, I, I, I think it's the question, of course, I mean, Bravo for asking the question, because it's, it's um, yeah, I, I mean, it's the paradox, right? It's sort of that the reason that we know that people are so despairing is that we now talk about despair. Um, and so is there more despair? Um, you know, I think, I don't really know the answer to that. I mean, I, I, I think... Um, what does interest me is noticing the um, noticing who gets removed from politics and political process through um, the way we redirect despair. And art has been a way we have redirected despair. Um, you know, this morning Jolly was talking about the fact that a lot of really radical thinkers who are giving talks are giving them at like the Museum of Modern Art, which removes them entirely, as she put it, from representational politics. Um, I think the ways that we respond to the despair are of, of the most interest to me as opposed to what causes them. Um, not because I don't find that interesting, but I just don't know what to do about it. I don't know how to answer that. Um, and so, you know, I ask myself, you know, sort of questions all the time about, you know, as a parent and how, how, how much screen time are you supposed to do before you're killing a person or, you know, I, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, it's, that's, that's basically what we want to know. And, um, I, you know, I, I guess one of the things I do notice is when I spend too much time thinking about those things, um, I'm not doing anything. <laughs> I'm just worrying over that. And I think, um, you know, we have a term, the worried well, and I think I see a lot of worried well folks, um, and I would 
consider myself in that group in many ways. And I think the you don't need to be well, um, but we need to kind of cut off the worry at a certain amount of minutes. You know, it, it like we gotta kind of cap that, that those fears of things that even if the worst case scenario happens, it's really not that bad, right? Like we're kind of not um, booking time for the urgent. I, I think, <laughs> sorry if that isn't unhelpful. I'm, I'm wondering, <clears throat> I know you've taken a You've retired temporarily from making public analyses of art, but I'm wondering if you'd be willing to turn your understanding of the artificially intelligent uh, fractal mm -hmm. dives that we saw in the last presentation, which on the one hand seem to incorporate movement and time and, yeah. and a woven quality with the fractals uh -huh. um, and endlessness. Um, I guess when from, I, I kind of stepped in partway through uh, the last one, but when it seems like the artists were uh, programming for animals or for clouds or for faces and this interlinking of some predetermined via algorithm mm -hmm. symbols that, that a viewer would otherwise extract from it mm -hmm. and then to have that just snowball upon itself mm -hmm. infinitely with a cityscape somewhere in there and a right. criminal element somewhere else. Right. Um, so what, what did you make of, of the pieces that Blaze showed us? I, yeah, I, I love this question um, because <laughs> of course I'm willing to analyze some works of art in public because I totally just did, uh, even though I say I'm not doing that anymore. Um, I'm not an alcoholic, I just had a couple of drinks. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, the, what comes to my mind when you ask me that is um, that a few years ago, a critic for the New York Times named Ken Johnson wrote a book, and it was talked about, like this book was coming out when Ken Johnson was quite much younger. And Ken Johnson, and I, you know, for me, I'll just say, showed a lot of promise within his like sentences and ideas. And then I really feel that Ken Johnson went in a super un awesome direction. So um, I was really looking forward to this book coming out. And actually the book is a little bit of a pivot point in the way I was um, experiencing his work because the book was about drugs and art. Like, you know, let's look at drugs and art. Drugs and art. It seemed like a really potentially interesting um, study of the way that, you know, the same question of, that I'm really coping with right now is like, do you, am, like, is me going into like some kind of a psychotherapy essentially like getting stoned and staying in my room rather than working out in the public? You know, I mean, like there's a way in which drugs become this um, sort of trippy, cool, you know, and like nobody does anything about anything because they're super excited about seeing a fractal. So, um, you know, obviously it's the book that Ken Johnson wrote was entirely free of politics, like, like washed free. It is a terrible book. I read the whole, th I, I rushed out, I got it, I was going to review it. And then I was like, it's just not worth taking down like some guy who's 10 times more powerful than me anyway. <laughs> it's just super weird. So I was just like, bah. But um, ignoring things has always been a major strategy of the way that I worked. And I don't think everybody always noticed that, but I, people would be like, why didn't you cover that? I'm like, well, yeah, hmm. So, um, but, uh, <laughs> but the, you know, I guess, I guess it goes back again to that answer of like what matters less than what the work wants to do or the purported thing the work wants to do that the artist can sort of talk about in a lecture and a critic can talk about if we're answering the question is um, what we end up saying about it to each other. Like if that work ends up, let's say one of those works, if the, the neural zoo, I think it was the neural zoo, neural zoo, 
ends up uh, uh, becoming chiefly a way for people to get stoned and sit around, then I do not like it. And I do not think it is a good idea to exhibit it. I mean, you know, like, I think that's a little bit of the way that I respond to things, is I'm also looking at the response of other people to the things, because I'm just one person. So I'm really kind of, um, I'm immediately, I start from a really, like, um, uh, skeptical place, always. But, uh, but I think I'm a very loving critic. <laughs> Probably every critic says that. Yes, sorry. <laughs> um, hi. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so I really respect your transition that you're making. I spent Thanks. 15 years as a social worker and mm -hmm. then made a different kind of transition to be an artist. Mm -hmm. And uh, my question for you, because all, all of what you're saying, I feel, uh, mm -hmm. but I don't know what to do. I know. So, <laughs> and I know that's what you're saying, but... Uh, What's your advice for artists? Mm. <laughs> right. I have been asked to talk about modern despair and to give my advice for artists. Um, and I, I say that not out of any disrespect for those questions, but because when I wrote this talk, I was like, I don't know how to end this damn thing. Um, because I really actually, I died don't have a lot of answers. I mean, I think respecting the delicacy of, delicacy of connection is my um, sort of most um, current sort of belief, um, and I'm trying to do that in every single way that I possibly can um, with regular relationships, but also um, when I'm, you know, dealing with something that is public, something like this, um, and I think um, what I'm doing is trying to invent little um, spaces where I'm doing direct service. Um, and, uh, and trying to really minimize attenuation, intellectualization. Um, and I think Blaze is absolutely, he's the guy who gave you the answer already. So, you know, it's, of course, what we have to fear is us. And, um, and I think really, um, you know, trying to understand how personal xenophobia is, even if you are not a racist, right? Like trying to understand the personal process that you have to go through to believe in otherness and selfness and um, yeah, just trying to answer the damn phone when I can for people who are asking for help. Sorry, I, I said I wasn't gonna ask you a question up here and I'm a liar, but <laughs> I thought of one and I thought maybe all these people would wanna hear the answer. Um, as someone who is going from the field of art to the field of psychology and is, you know, so fascinated with, like, kind of the hidden messages that art can carry, how important do you think the psychological state of an artist is to their work? Do you think that it's essential to understand what's going on in an artist's mind to understand their work, or do you think that good art should speak purely for itself? That's my daughter. <laughs> She's so cool. Um, I also have a couple of really cool sons. Okay. Um, we never let her watch screens. Just kidding. She's not, that's not real. Um, you know, what I think is that the... Um, We're really psyched to talk about the artists. Um, and we also have this desire to really treat objects as though they're luxury objects and to accept that that's normal. 
Um, so in one sense, we're really interested in like the emotional and psychological and biographical impulses of the, you know, of the artist. And then on the other hand, once a thing is sold, sort of like, how much did it sell for? What is it worth? Where is it going to go? Whose collection is it in? Who's going to curate that show? And so, you know, I think, I think it is a really hard question and it's a really hard balance because I do want to keep the other person who, uh, who, who's involved in this transaction alive in the clues that they left, right? Like somebody left that object there. It's not nobody. And it is a specific somebody. And there are things that you can figure out or find out about that somebody that I think are helpful. And I think as long as you can kind of keep them, you know, in a conversation with your own brain about, uh, you know, what your biases actually are, you know, like what you assume this means or that means, then you kind of can keep the work of art open. Like you can keep the object itself more open and less up for sale, like less up for any kind of like shorthandedness, you know, where it's just like, you can't reduce it. You can keep it moving, you can keep it moving, keep it moving, which is my hope in, in, in becoming a therapist because I have been in therapy for 20 years and I'm not gonna stop, is that um, I can at least have some people that I work with who just keep building this story about themselves over time and it can deepen and become a better story and a story that is more humane and you know, works, works with other, you know, in my dream I have like, every single person on one block is my, uh, therapy practice <laughs> like I just work with them for years and years and years and it actually makes the block better um, and so I think I have I got really far away from the question but I think like that you know that's that's sort of there is somebody on the other end I always like remembering that so thank you so much for listening I hope I didn't go home <laughs> <laughs>